Shalom, and welcome to Kehilat Rosh Pina, a dynamic, multicultural, and growing Messianic Jewish congregation located in the heart of Oklahoma City and led by Rabbi Michael Weigand. Our goal is to bring you the message of the Word each week from a Jewish perspective and to exalt Messiah Yeshua as Lord and Savior overall. We are a loving congregation made up of both Jew and Gentile, now one in the Messiah, with Shabbat morning services at 10.40 a.m. and various studies throughout the week. Please come and join us next time you are in Oklahoma City. We would love to have you. And now, we hope you enjoy today's message. Exodus chapter 17 was the ending point of last week's parasha, and I want to read to you several verses from Exodus chapter 17, beginning with verse 8 through verse 13. And you'll recognize some of the names that are mentioned here. And as I read through this, please notice the name Amalek or Amalek. Verse 8, Exodus 17. Now Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, Choose us some men and go out, fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. Verse 10 is a key verse. So Joshua did as Moses said to him. The whole text would have changed if the verse said, and Joshua decided he didn't want to do what Moses said to him. So Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill And so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when Moses let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands became heavy. So they took a stone and put it under Moses, and he sat on it. And Aharon and Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side, And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. This passage is grossly familiar to us. There are many different ways to view this passage. For example, I noticed, and I pointed it out to you before reading it, I noticed that the name Amalek is repeated, and I like to count things, and in my translation, it came out that he, his name was repeated five times, and also in my translation, Moses' name was repeated five times. The Amalekite attack, those connected to Amalek, the Amalekite attack of Israel at Rephidim, which is where this took place that we just read, was, and Jewish tradition says, is the opening salvo of what became a protracted struggle and Amalekites warring against the Jewish people, the Israelites, the Hebrews. A protracted struggle. This wasn't just a one and done type thing. 
My idea here today to transfer to you is to show you just how far this went. Amalek and the Amalekites were a continual thorn in the side of Israel for many generations. And it's become, and I've heard it even when I was younger, and maybe some of you heard it as well, that the Amalekites, throughout the ages, anyone who was a dire enemy of the Jewish people was like an Amalek, or part of the Amalekites. But the question that I want to pose is, who were these people? Who were they? These people we read about in Exodus and say for Shemot, the book of Exodus chapter 17, who were these people anyway? Suddenly they appear and they're attacking Israel. They were a desert tribe, first of all. And like many desert tribes, the Amalekites were a nomadic people, meaning they wandered they had a particular area, they're somewhat akin to modern Bedouin, but they had a particular area where they wandered. And in this case, the Amalekites were extremely ruthless. In Numbers chapter 13, verse 29, places them as native to the Negev desert region of what would be modern Israel, still called the Negev desert the Negev region region of Israel. And at that time, at the time of Moses coming forward, the Negev desert region was between Egypt and Canaan, the land of Canaan. Israel was yet to occupy the land. So this region where this nomadic Amalekite tribe or group wandered around and, and exerted influence and ruthlessness was between Egypt and Canaan. That same region now in modern Israel is a marvel. I know years ago in the early 70s, I traveled down to the northern segment of uh, the Negev Desert, near the city of Beersheba. Many of you have heard of Beersheba, some of you have been there. And they were doing what we might call um, reforestation in the area of Beersheba back then. 1975, I guess was the year. The last time I was there, which was a few years ago, I literally was taken back. How many trees had been grown there? I saw it as they were just starting to do that back in the early 70s, and here in the the year 2020 or so, the whole area has become forested, amazingly so. But back at the time of Moses and the Amalekites, that was a desert region. There were, there were trees, obviously, and over the centuries they were cut down. But that was the place of Amalekite authority. That's where they felt like they owned this place. They were the rulers of it, and they were quite ruthless about it, particularly to the children of Israel. We get some hint about who the Amalekites were when we look in, for example, Genesis chapter 36, and it refers to the descendants of Amalek, and that was the son of Eliphaz and grandson of, and you know this name, Esau. How many of you have heard the name Esau before? (laughs) When you hear the name Esau, I don't know what kind of an association you get with that name. I don't always get the best association with the name Esau. And apparently Amalek, the son of Eliphaz and grandson of Esau, was related to what the group that eventually became known as the Edomites. They weren't the same group, but they were from the same, how, you, how would you say, genealogical tree, same family tree. 
And that long-lasting feud or struggle between the Amalekites and the Israelites is displayed so much in the Bible that it absolutely becomes a major point. There are at least three passages of Scripture. One's in Exodus, the other's in 1 Samuel, and the third one's in Devarim, Deuteronomy. There are at least three passages of Scripture that it, where God expresses to the Israelites, you know what he says to them concerning the Amalekites? You probably already know the answer. He says to them, totally destroy the Amalekites. Totally destroy them. We'll read about that in just a few moments. So here are three different sections of Scripture, Exodus, Deuteronomy, and uh, 1 Samuel. God tells Israel the same thing, destroy, utterly destroy, as some translations say. Utterly destroy the Amalekites. Get rid of them. Now, there's a spiritual truth to this that I think is really important for you and me. And not to over-spiritualize, because I don't think that does justice to this text that we're dealing with in Exodus 17. But there's an important spiritual truth that I think is found throughout the scripture that does link to this concept of destroying the Amalekites. That principle is this, that there are some things, and even at times some people, that are incompatible with our covenant relationship with God. Now, the new covenant has many ways to say, that, say this. For example, it says, bad company corrupts good morals. How many of you know that's in Scripture too? Rob Joel, Paul the Apostle. It tells us also that we, you know, we're not to come out of the world, we're going to interact with the world, but we're not to, basically, we're not to be the ones that are molded by the people of the world. We're supposed to impact the people of the world. We're supposed to be the ones proclaiming a message that offers them hope. And so often I've seen it the many years I've been involved in what I do. I have seen individuals pulled to the wayside by bad influences in their lives. And one of the great secrets about spiritual growth is to learn how to rightfully and righteously separate from some of those influences that are bringing bad things to your life. And a person that's willing to do that separation, they're, separation from, they're separating from some things, but they're also being connected to other things that God brings to them. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Rob Shaul, very akin to the principle I'm talking about, he tells the Corinthian believers, which was a mixed group of Jews and Gentiles according to the book of Acts, he tells them, he says, verse 14, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, he says, notice how he says it. He doesn't say, well, I suggest to you, or if you like it and if it's okay with you, he says, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. He doesn't say, have nothing to do with them. He says, don't be equally, unequally yoked with them. Don't be connected with them in the wrong type of way. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And then he gives the rationale behind some of his thinking for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness. And what communion has light with darkness? 
And what accord has Messiah with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? You notice he continues like this continuous stream of thought pointing out to them the basic premise that is one of the over a thousand commandments in the new covenant, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. He continues, and what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The message to you and to me here, at least one of them derived from the passages of Scripture that we have been reading already, is that we must leave behind the incompatible attitudes, desires, and ways of this life that are displeasing to the Lord in order that we might walk in harmony with the Holy Spirit, the Ruach HaKodesh. It's said in very distinct terms in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, summarizes this idea and says, again, it's a commandment, it's not a suggestion, walk in the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. 1 Yohanan, 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, I think is even more precise because it shows us the place of Yeshua in all this matter. It says, but if we walk in the light as he, Yeshua, is in the light, guess what? We have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Messiah, Yeshua, his son, cleanses us from all sin. All that Amalek represented, all that Amalek aspired to do, and all that Amalek practiced was perpetually incompatible with all Israel was to be and all Israel was to do. Hence, it makes a lot of spiritual sense. God says, completely get rid of them. And warns them. In fact, let's look at another passage where he says it again at the very end of Sefer Devarim. Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 17, it says, Remember what Amalek did to you. He tells them, Get rid of them, but also remember, don't forget what they've done to you. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt. And please notice what he says, what the Lord says following. How he met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks. All the stragglers at your rear. So Amalek purposely went out, attacked Israel, not from the front, but from the back. There in the back, and think about some of your own travels. Maybe if you've been on a hike with some friends, and there was a, a group of you. I've certainly had this experience over the years, including very recently, last week. We had d- different individuals had different abilities going down that trail. And there were some, they were like nanny goats. They were way out there, and there are others that barely could make it. You know. 
And as Israel's going through the desert, they come out of Mitzrayim, out of Egypt. There's this group of people. There's some are out and forward, and there's others that are stragglers. I mean, they're still with the group. They're still part of it. They're, they're, they're lagging behind. Have you, have you ever been the person that's lagged behind on something? A task, a, a, maybe a, a journey through the forest or, or rowing a boat and you're the one that's left behind? The Amalekites attacked those people, the ones that were left behind. You know who were among their ranks? Just think about it. Who are the ones in the back? The stragglers, as they're called, they were probably people that were elderly, couldn't quite walk as fast. There are people, maybe mothers, who were nursing children. I know just from watching my wife nurse her children, sometimes she just had to stop and do it. Actually, as the baby wailed, she stopped quicker. <laughs> The mothers with their nursing children, the infirm, those that maybe had a little bit of a crick in their knee, the increpid, all those type of peoples, the handicapped, those that were less physically able to be at the front of the line, the blind that needed someone to help them. Later on, the Torah, and one of the most beautiful statements in the Torah, in my opinion, says, do not put a stumbling block in front of the blind. And the spiritual principles for you and me, if you're professing you're a believer, don't you put stumbling blocks through your actions, your words, among those who are spiritually blind. That's not pleasing to the Lord. Those type of people, there they harden the back. Amalek met you on the way, it continues, and attacked your rear ranks. And then it says, when you were tired and weary, and he did not fear God. Amalek disregarded ultimate judgment. You know, think about it. The Amalekites, as they attacked, they, they, they thought, how well, we overcome, this is it. We're, we're the victors. But they didn't recognize and they refused to recognize that ultimately God has the final say. That he's the great judge. And that same type of mentality is increasingly pervasive in 21st century America and the world. We can just do what we want. There's not going to be any judgment. We, we, if it feels good, we can do it, and it doesn't matter because there won't be any judgment. That, that's a, a Malachite spirit. There is a day of judgment. There is a time where God is, he's going to have the final, how many agree that God's going to have the final say in all this? He has the final say. And I suggest to you with the strongest suggestion I can to humble yourself before the living God now. Don't try to pull the proverbial wool over his eyes about any area of your life. Be right with him in every area. Don't try to kid him because it doesn't work. The Amalekites thought, wow, we'll just go in and we'll wreak havoc on these weak, feeble. We'll get them from behind while they're weak and they're, they're vulnerable. We'll get them. We got them. And as the Lord says, they didn't fear God at all. Fear God and keep his commandments. Do what he says. 
That's the way we need to walk our lives. Continues in verse 19 of Deuteronomy chapter 25. Therefore it shall be when the Lord your God has given you rest from your enemies all around in the land which the Lord your God has given you to possess as an inheritance. Remember Deuteronomy is just before entering into the land of promise. Just before successfully crossing the Jordan River and overtaking Jericho and spreading out under Joshua. Read the book of Joshua. explains it part by part of what happened. The Lord says, it shall be when the Lord your God has given you rest from your enemies all around in the land which the Lord your God has given you to possess as an inheritance that you will blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. Wow. How many of you believe God is pretty serious about this Amalekite stuff? He is serious about this. Blot out their name, the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. Then he says, Lo tishkach, you shall not forget. The Amalekites later, since they weren't completely eradicated at this point, Later, they joined with the Canaanites and they attacked the Israelites at Hormah. It's mentioned in the book of Numbers, chapter 14. And in the book of Shoftim, in the book of Judges, they banded with the Moabites and they banded with the Midianites in two separate conflagrations to wage war against the Israelites. In the book of Judges, chapter 3, the book of Judges, chapter 6, here we have the Amalekites continually aligning themselves with anyone who will take on the covenant people of God. Historians tell us, it's quite interesting, tells us what their tactics were. What tactics would they take as they attacked? You can follow in the book of Judges somewhat because it tells us but their tactics were really quite simple. And think about how it was back in that generation where there weren't super Walmarts on the corner and there weren't order by phone your groceries and have it delivered to your house or go pick it up and none of that existed. What were the Amalekites' tactics? Well, there were two basic ones. They repeatedly sought to destroy the land of the Israelites and the food of the Israelites. If they could ruin the land, then the Israelites would not be able to produce food to take care of themselves. And what would that do for them? Again, remember, there were no McDonald's or Walmarts or anything like that out there, or Kroger's or wherever. They lived by what they could grow, what they could reap, what they could harvest from their trees, from their plants. And the Amalekites thought, aha, we ruin their land and we destroy their crops and we continually do this. They will be so weak, we will just overcome them, swallow them up and ruthlessly destroy them. So it was in actuality a pitched battle between the Amalekites who sought to totally destroy Israel and the Israelites who were told by God, you better totally destroy them. It's as if the Lord knew what was in their hearts, the Amalekites' hearts. That there wasn't a place in their hearts for mercy and compassion or working together, coexistence. 
In 1 Samuel chapter 15, the Amalekites pop up again in verse 2. This is what God told King Shaul, King Saul, Israel's first king. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Adonai Tzvaot. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel. Notice this is many centuries later and God still, how do we say it in human terms? He still remembers. He's still thinking about what they did. That's how reprehensible their actions were before him. I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel. How he ambushed him gives us another element of the attack. How he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. And again in verse 3, now go and attack Amalek. Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them but kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey and if you're like me you, you're, you stand back and say wow that's a strong commandment. You think about what he said there. He's saying this is a fight to the finish. This, there's not going to be any, any peaceful coexistence you know, realm here. It's going to be you, Israel, or them, Amalek, the Amalekites. Well, what King Saul actually did is quite well known. It's recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 15 forward. This is what King Saul actually did. And you heard how direct that was. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have. Do not spare them. King Saul, what he did in brief was first he warned the Kenites, which was a group that was favorable to the Israelites. He warns them. That's pretty good. You think about it. You warn, you warn what's about to happen. Your friends, those who have been favorable to you. The Kenites were friends of Israel. He warns them that they need to leave the area. And then Saul, King Saul, attacks the Amalekites. But, and boy, this is a big thing historically and biblically, but he does not fully destroy them. He allowed Agag, the Amalekite king, he allowed him to live. King Saul and his men took plunder for himself and his army. And then, as the text tells us, and you're welcome to read in 1 Samuel 15 forward, the text tells us then they lied about the reason they did so. Saul's rebellion, King Saul actually rebels against what God said. And some of God's, what he says to us, is pretty strong stuff. Think about some of the commandments in the New Covenant that are really strong, really forceful. Saul's rebellion against the Lord and his commands was so serious before the Lord that Saul was rejected by God as king. He was replaced. 1 Samuel 15, 23 tells us that. And it's no surprise that the escaped Amalekites, the ones that were totally, weren't totally vanquished by King Saul, even though Saul had been commanded to do so, to utterly, I mean, to do the job completely. These escaped Amalekites, they continued to har harass and then even got to the point of plundering again the Israelites from generation to generation afterwards, their descendants. 
it wasn't as if, well, they survived and they turned over a new leaf. The Amalekites were Amalekites. That's who they were. And this struggle with the Amalekites, which Scripture tells us, gives us a great length. There's a thread through Scripture concerning Amalek and the Amalekites. It continued on, and as we read in 1 Samuel chapter 30, it reports that it was an Amalekite raid on Ziklag, a Judean village, a village in Yehudah in Judea, a village that David held property in. And the Amalekites burned the village They took captive all the women, all the women and all the children, including two of David's wives. And David and his men, they rise up. Text is very interesting if you read the history. They rise up and they eventually defeated the Amalekites and they rescued all those hostages from the Amalekites but still some of them lived. And much later during the reign of King Hezekiah, it was a group of Simeonites, descendants of Shimon, the Simeonites, that killed the remaining Amalekites, all those who had been living in the hill country of Seir, which we would call Edom. Finally, it seems, centuries later under King Hezekiah, that there seems to be a real destruction of the Amalekites. Yet, (laughs) and we're approaching this season now, that's not exactly the case. It was locally, but there was was some other action going on because they had many descendants now. The longer they were allowed to survive, the more descendants they had. And it's a curious point, though, in modern Israel. I checked last night, and every source that I could find online, etc., including uh, real books that I have at home. And there still is no archaeological evidence in the Negev area of the Amalekites, although they were ruthlessly there. It's as almost as if they've been erased somehow. All the archaeological discoveries going on in Israel, and it seems like every day there's something new and exciting happening. There's still a lack of any evidence of them. Part of it has to do is that they were nomadic. In other words, they were wanderers. But also, nothing's been found. Now, you can probably guess what is the last mention of the Amalekites in the Bible. It's in the book of Esther. Book of Esther. And there we encounter someone whose name is Haman. <laughs> Esther. Okay, good. This is practice for Purim. But, <laughs> but we encounter that guy who was an Agagite. <laughs> and he was a descendant of the Amalekite king Agag. Does that name ring a bell? He was genealogically connected to that king. The Bible's very clear about that. It's not speculative. And it's this one, the Agagite, the big H or the little H is better, Haman, (laughs) who connives, he connives to have all the Jews in Persia annihilated by order of King Xerxes. Now think about it. Here's this descendant of the Amalekites, 
who still, even though he's miles and hundreds of miles away from the original Negev area, he still has the same penchant. What's his penchant? He wants to destroy the Jewish people. It's there. It just verifies increasingly the wisdom of God saying, utterly destroy them. It's a fight to the finish here. Well, we know, and I hope you'll be here for Purim, God willing, as we come to that celebration, but we know that God saved the Jewish people in Persia. He used a maiden, a young woman named Hadassah. How fitting that today we dedicated baby Hadassah. Hadassah Esther was also a given name to bring about a great deliverance in Persia, the land of Persia. And uh, Israel's enemies were destroyed at that time. Now I want to conclude with this. These two thoughts, and with five points afterwards, these two thoughts, how did Moses deal with the Amalekites? How, what did he actually do? We read the text. What did he do? And what should we learn from his approach as he dealt with the Amalekites? And let me read to you again the original narrative. It's from the end of last week's parasha. Exodus 17, verse 8. And listen carefully. This is what happened. Now Amalek came and fought with Israel and Rephidim, and Moses said to Joshua, Choose us some men and go out, fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aharon, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when Moses let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands became heavy. So they took a stone and put it under him and he sat on it and Aaron and her supported his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. Verse 13 of Exodus 17 tells us with some finality in this battle, so Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. So what do we learn from this? Point number one, Moses and Joshua, and there were others connected to them, Moses and Joshua they did not give in. You know what they did? It's two simple words. They fought. And so often we give in to things in our lives that we should be fighting against. Particular habits that maybe aren't the best. Particular individuals that we continually to, to allow to influence it away from the Lord, not to the Lord. And we give in. Sometimes it's a partial give-in. Sometimes it's a full giving-in. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12 says, Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Here, Rav Shaul, a descendant of Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin, Paul the Apostle, tells them, fight the good fight. That good fight of faith. Friends, 
that command still resonates to this 21st century right here in this community. We need to fight the good fight of faith and take stock of your life. Anything that seems to be, can I say it this way, of an Amalekite spirit, get away from it. There's no, there's no coexistence with those things. It will harm you. Point number two, Moses kept his hands lifted in victory, granted by the end of the day he needed help. And that's like us also. We may be walking in victory in certain areas and sometimes we need help. We need our hands lifted, if you will, figuratively. And a lesson we can glean from all this is that Moses, when his, up, his hands were uplifted, his arms were up, uplifted, there was victory, it tells us, the text tells us. There was victory in the camp. And to me, when I think of uplifted hands, I think of worship and praise. I love to lift my hands to the Lord, and not just here, privately. How about you? Do you have a time alone where there aren't human eyes looking at you where you're lifting your hands to the living God? There's a picture with Moses there, and you know, there were others gathered around him, but for the most part, he held his hands and lifted, and there was victory, and there's victory, and there's power and worship and praise before God. You'll be surprised that if you'll enter into a deeper place of worship and praise, not just in the community, this is good and we need this as well, but in your personal life, you'll have personal victories come. I don't think we'll find spiritual victory through complaining. We won't find spiritual victory through fault-finding, especially directed towards others, and sometimes towards ourselves. Have you ever heard the term, well, you're your own worst enemy? And we won't find spiritual victory by retreating in fear from those challenges that the Lord allows to come into our life. We keep pressing on to the high call that's in Messiah Yeshua. First Yohanan chapter five verse four says, first John chapter five verse four says, and this is the victory. This is the victory that has, listen to this please, that has overcome the world. Our faith. Are you a person of trust? Are you trusting the Lord? Can you trust him with your life? There's victory there if you'll trust him. There's victory. Point number three of five. Moses worked together with the Lord and in tandem with his people, such as Joshua. I love that picture of Joshua and Joshua out there fighting and Aaron and her lifting up the hands of Moses. What a beautiful picture that is. Have you ever had time where you help somebody by lifting them up, encouraging them, helping them keep their hands up, so to say? Moses worked together with the Lord and with people around him to help bring about victory. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1, we read this. Notice the first statement, please, in this passage. We then as workers together with him. 
There's no solo missions here, friends. We are working with the Lord. Hopefully, we're following the Lord, doing what the Lord says, and then in unity with one another for the purposes of the Lord. We then, as workers together with him, 2 Corinthians 6, verse 1, also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in an acceptable time, I have heard you, and in the day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Point number four. Moses received and he profited from comfort and encouragement. Exodus 17, verse 12 says, and Aaron and her supported his hand. So Moses was a receiver of help. And Aaron and her supported his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. You know, it's quite interesting that Aaron and her had to work together in this issue. Suppose both Aaron and her had just been doing the same thing on one side. So you'd have one hand up like this and the other one lagging down. But they worked as a team, Aaron and her. They worked as a team to make sure that Moses, both his hands were lifted up. Friends in the community, we work as a team for the uplifting of the purposes of God. And sometimes we work as a team to help one another in times of difficulty. Sometimes it's a time of sorrow, a time of loss. Other times it's a time of challenge of a job situation or a family matter. Sometimes it's a health issue. But we want to strengthen, help, edify, build up, come alongside as best as we can in the Lord. I know it's always been an amazing thing for me to at one time have someone in a hospital. I mentioned this a few weeks back, maybe two months ago. Someone in the hospital and, and have that person say, I don't want so-and-so to come visit me. I'm like, what? And gave the name of that person. I don't want them to visit me in the hospital. And I thought, Why? And then they expressed that the things that the person said just made them feel worse. <laughs> you lack faith. How come you're not healthy? All that stuff. You don't think the person that's having struggles doesn't think about those things? Moses was blessed to have an Aaron and a her alongside me. And I hope you have Aaron and hers alongside of you or you're an Aaron and a her to others. Hopefully both things apply to you. And lastly, from Isaiah chapter 35, let me read this passage, verse 3. It says, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are fearful hearted, be strong, do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God, he will come and save you. And lastly, point five. Point number five is a reminder. We look in Exodus chapter 17 at the battle with the Amalekites, but we are in a spiritual battle too. Point number five is be aware that you are in a spiritual battle, that there is spiritual warfare involved in your life. And I'll conclude with this passage of Scripture because I believe it explains itself perfectly. 
Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Many of you have this memorized. Finally, my brethren, notice what it says. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Verse 13, Ephesians 6, Therefore, take up what? The whole armor of God. Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. You've been listening to the Shabbat message from Rosh Pinah Messianic Jewish Congregation in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. We would love to have you visit us. Our weekly services begin at 10.40 a.m. each Shabbat, and we are located at 2600 Northwest 55th Place, north of Northwest Expressway at the corner of Northland Avenue and Northwest 55th Place. We meet each Shabbat for wonderful praise and worship with dance, liturgy, teaching, food, fellowship, excellent children's programs, and Bible studies on Tuesday nights. For more information, please visit our website, www.roshpinah.org. That's R-O-S-H-P-I-N-A-H dot O-R-G. You can also reach us by phone at 405-842-1967 or email us at info at roshpinah.org. Thank you for spending time in the Word with us today. Shabbat Shalom and blessings in Messiah Yeshua.